I welcome to you. My name is Greg Durenberger. If I have not met you, I'm the senior pastor of Mayos Road Church. And I want to invite you to turn now to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, the 12th chapter. I find it helpful personally as, as I'm reading, meditating on God's word through the book of Exodus to keep in mind that Moses composed this book, the book of Exodus, specifically for a generation of Israelites who had not, they had not experienced the dramatic, blood-drenched, signs and wonders saturated, triumphant departure from Egypt. That was not the first audience. All that the first readers of Exodus knew experientially was wilderness. Think about that. A whole life, lifetime. In Egyptian enslavement was the life of a prior generation. Several generations, actually. And so this wilderness generation, they were young, relatively speaking. None of them were older than 40 years of age. And though they had not lived that tortured existence of slavery. Nevertheless, their lives, as we shall see in the coming chapters of the book of Exodus, they were characterized more often than not by lack of joy. Long camping trip was not a big deal to all of them. Discontent, complaining, spiritual declension, and appalling idolatry. It's a constant danger. I, th I think that's a constant danger for anyone who fails to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing that I'm referring to is God's glorious and sovereign work of saving people from their sin. Donald Carson writes, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. When the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. And such was the danger that faced the Israelites who first read this book. The Israelites who were standing on the shore of the Jordan River, poised to invade a territory populated by innumerable idols. And I believe this is precisely the reason God's word to Moses and to Aaron and to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 43 through chapter 13, verse 16, is so applicable to each and every one of us today. Every day, we all face the temptation to move away from the gospel, to let it drop from our hands, from our heads, from our hearts. But the purpose of our text today is to remind us, to remind us yet again, that the first and most important thing we can do, always, 
is to make sure that the gospel of our great salvation is always at the center of our lives. So, I invite you to stand if you're able and please follow along. I'm not going to read this entire text, but I'm going to read Exodus chapter 12 verses 43 through 51. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take of the flesh of any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who who sojourns among you. And all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. God's holy word. Let's pray. We're depending on you, Lord, to bring the illumination that we need, not just to understand a biblical text with our minds, but to see your glory, the glory of your saving work, to be affected afresh anew, that your saving work would take center, be the centerpiece of our lives, and it would ripple out, affecting everything else. And so we are looking to you, depending on you, the working of your Holy Spirit to make this so among us even today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, if you've been tracking with us, I think the question that immediately would rise in the mind of of a careful reader of the book of Exodus is, didn't Moses already cover this? I mean, not not like back in chapter 3 or 5 or 6, wasn't the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread covered at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 12? We already know about the Passover. We already know about the rules. We've already considered the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So why is it significant for Moses' audience to focus on it all over again in the same chapter? Well, when a biblical author uses repetition, it's not a waste. It's for a reason. There are some added details in this section, details related to the fact that now there are foreigners and slaves and strangers who are all part of this so-called mixed multitude that left Egypt along with the Israelites. So one reason perhaps for 
revisiting the statute of the Passover is to account for what we might refer to as interlopers. There were non-Israelites who had seen with their own eyes the, the, the terrors that the Egyptians had endured. And they had seen with their own eyes how the Israelites had been spared. And so when that, when that train began to leave the station, they got on. They got on because they envisioned the possibility of a plague-free future. It's a good thing. But they were not people of faith. They were not part of the covenant community. They were, they were pragmatists. Looking and longing for safety. You know, when I was 10 years old, I, I remember praying that God would forgive me of my sins because I was scared to death of, first of all, being left behind, and second, that I might be going to hell. I was much more fearful of that than I was actually drawn in any way of attraction or love or desire for Jesus so clarification was needed, and God provided the clarification. In the future, when the Passover was observed, participation in that celebration of, of their great deliverance was not limited or closed off to anyone based on ethnicity or social standing or nationality, as long as they received the sign of the covenant. Circumcision, that's mentioned three times in the portion of Scripture I just read. But I think a, maybe an even more fundamental reason for circling back and reviewing the rituals of the Passover, the consecration of the, the firstborn, the observance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is because each of those rituals were markers. They were markers pointing to the Exodus. They were part of a new calendar that would serve as an enduring reminder to the centrality of this saving event. The Passover, the consecration of the firstborn, the Feast of Unleavened Bread were meant to commemorate what the Lord had done for His people. It was all about keeping the main thing, the main thing, generation after generation after generation, these key observances were the means that God had ordained by which his people would make certain that the gospel remained at the center of their lives. So how do, how do God's people keep the main thing the main thing? Well, they would remember the exodus again and again and again. And they would remember it through the Passover through the consecration of the firstborn, and through the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, my purpose here uh, is to consider how each of these, these means of remembering the Exodus, how each of them apply to us, and how they serve us as we would seek to keep the gospel at the center and forefront of our lives. Each of these observances which God commanded for his people in the Old Testament. They, they point back to the Exodus, but they also reach forward. They function 
for all generations of God's people. Now, they, they don't look exactly the same way in the New Testament or today, but they each have practical application for us today. So, so what does the application of the Passover or the application of the consecration of the firstborn or the application of the Feast of Unleavened Bread look like for us for the people of the Mass Road Church. How do they serve us? How do they help us to keep the main thing the main thing? Let's look at them one at a time. First of all, the Passover. The Passover. It, it, it finds its application and expression today in our practice of the Lord's Supper. Like the Passover, our observance of the Lord's Supper is a regular reminder that we're all sinners in need of deliverance from God's wrath. The Lord's Supper is a picture of a sacrificial substitute that died in our place for our sin. God's method for putting away His anger against our sin was to slaughter a pure and spotless lamb. And Jesus who was truly God and fully man, would be that sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing substitute, suffering the punishment that sinners like you and I deserve, so that by the grace of God we might be forgiven by God, reconciled to God, and adopted into God's family. The judgment of God against our sin was placed on His innocent Son so that all, all who trust in Him would be passed over on that final day of judgment. So each time we make that our focus, and we're going to do that next Sunday, every, t- every time we eat the bread, drink that cup, that are symbols of the body and the shed blood of our great Savior, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, we are reminded of our own great exodus. And so, by so doing, we keep the gospel at the center of our lives where it must be. It's on the calendar, regularly. And like the Passover, which was limited, it was limited to the covenant people of God, we too guard that table. We guard that celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's open. It is open to anyone, regardless of their heritage, background, ethnicity, social standing. The one limiting factor is faith in Christ. Faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of the fulfillment of every promise that God has made, including the promise of eternal life. That's the one limiting factor for participating in the Lord's Supper is one's experience of the new covenant. A heart made new. A heart made new and expressed through the New Testament covenant symbol of baptism. Baptism is not what saves you. (laughs) We don't believe that. But baptism is the physical expression of our heart union with Christ in his death and resurrection. So the Lord's Supper and baptism, they both regularly draw our mind's attention and our heart's affection to what God has done to deliver us from his wrath against our sin. Second, Israel's consecration of the firstborn. 
and its application looks like. It's what we do when we have dedication of parents and children. The ritual consecration of the firstborn, it, 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 it was established to point to the exodus. And it certainly bears connection to that tenth plague in which God struck down the firstborn of Egypt. But it, went, it, went, it meant way more. The point of the ritual was to really show that, that whole families belong to God. The firstborn represented all the offspring including the girls, as well as the rest of the boys. And, and, and like that ancient consecration ceremony, that's, we practice the dedication of parents and children, where we pronounce over each child these solemn words, Today, with your parents who love you dearly, I dedicate you to God, surrendering together with them all worldly earthly claims upon your life in the hope that you will one day belong wholly to the Lord forever. And all God's people say, Amen. It's a, it's a, it's a promise made by parents. It's a promise made by God's people. It is a resolve that with God's empowering help, we will aim to raise our children in the nurture and the instruction of the Lord, which includes teaching them to set their hope in God and never, ever forget their exodus. The saving, saving work of God. We're going to do that uh, on Mother's Day. So keep that in mind because we know that there's a lot, of, a lot of new children among us. Thirdly, and this is where I'm going to spend the, the majority of my time here. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. finds its application, I believe, in what we might call today redemptive church discipline. Now, that requires a little clarification. I think that, it, unfortunately, what comes to mind when we use that term church discipline is it's some public shaming act of ostracism which is only its most extreme expression. Church discipline, really, friends, is it's a discipleship. It's a disciple making. And that's what we do all the time. We practice this form of discipline in our discipleship huddles every week. We use the phrase, repent, and believe we confess sins to one another, we speak the truth to one another in love, and our goal is to help one another turn, to turn again and again and again from unbelief to renewed reliance and trust in Christ alone. The, the goal of discipleship, or at its most extreme in church discipline, is to keep the main thing the main thing. So I want to invite you again to turn in your Bibles. This time we're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
where the Apostle Paul is writing to address an incident of sin in the Corinthian church. And, and the, the occasion for this passage, it's, it's heartbreaking. Paul addresses it right away, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So the, the Corinthian church apparently is tolerating the sin of a professing Christian man who is in an immoral relationship with his stepmother. And, and Paul's not only just like stunned by the sin itself, but perhaps and most likely even more stunned by the response, or maybe we should say the lack of response to the situation by the church itself. And so, and so he, says, he says, even surrounding pagans don't tolerate what you're tolerating in the church of Jesus Christ. So apparently the attitude of, of the people in the church of Corinth is just like, whatever. And, and it's just unthinkable. It's unacceptable, and Paul appropriately calls them out in verse 2. And you're arrogant? <laughs> you're arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Verse 6 says, you're boasting. It's not good. So, this is a, apparently a church where they had some spiritual swagger and uh, kind of feeling good about themselves and humility was not prized. And, and their arrogance is evident. It's evident by permitting this man to continue in this sin in the spiritual community without taking appropriate disciplinary action. We don't know, but their reluctance to confront perhaps had to do with him being a person of great influence, person of high social standing, but, but it's wrong. And so they're boasting about their, their outreach and their influence as a church is just out of bounds. And, and they should be grieving their condition, they should not be boasting about their condition, and in particular, they should be grieving their toleration of this this man. But, but then notice what Old Testament book Paul goes to, to draw, draw from, to address and to confront and to correct the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as... You really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Where does Paul go? He goes to Exodus, chapter 12. 
And he calls their attention and our attention to the Passover. And more specifically, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He, he does so to, to, to shake them. <laughs> shake them out of their complacency and to rescue them from their drifting away from the main thing, namely the gospel of their great salvation. Why does Paul, in this situation, go to and apply the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread? What difference does an Old Testament holiday make? After calling attention to the sin, Paul says in chapter 6, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So you remember, right? On the night of the Exodus, the Israelites were to prepare bread without yeast, without leaven, because they needed to be ready to bug out of there in a hurry. And prior to that, prior to that, they'd been instructed to purge their homes of all leaven in remembrance of God's gracious deliverance from Egypt. Phil Riken commenting on that text says, God wanted to do something. God wanted to do something more than get his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, appeals to this practice of purifying their homes of all leaven and eating only unleavened bread because in the New Testament, leaven represents the corrupting power of sin. It's obscure in Exodus chapter 12, but it's not obscure in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Like leaven, like yeast, sin spreads. And when it spreads, it affects others. In the Old Testament, that symbol might have been implicit, but... It's not until the New Testament that the symbol of leaven as a corrupting effect of sin becomes explicit. You, you may recall Jesus referring to leaven as a symbol of the corrupting power of sin when he warned his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is in the Pharisees, like leaven. Watch out. It'll spread to you. Hypocrisy will spread to you if you hang out with them. And leaven, it's really a most appropriate symbol of sin because of the way that, I mean, I'm an expert in bread making. <laughs> just a little leaven. I know this. I just can't do it. Uh, uh, just a little bit of yeast. It, it spreads. Right, you bread makers? When bread is baked, just all it takes is just a little bit of yeast. And it works its way through the whole dough. And it causes the whole thing to rise. Sin is like that. Sin is like yeast. It's like leaven. It spreads. And, and like a little leaven spreads through the whole batch of dough, so this man's sin tolerated unrepented of, will spread. And it will adversely affect the entire church. You know, Paul's concern, he, he's not mainly concerned for the reputation of the church in Corinth. He's, his main concern is for the spiritual health of the church 
in Corinth. And if this sin is not confronted and appropriately disciplined, then the destructive effect of this man's sin will, not maybe, definitely will be felt throughout the church. And Paul feared contamination of the whole spiritual community, and so he corrects them. And he corrects them by asking this question, do you not know? Because <laughs> they should know. If they know, if the, if the gospel has main, been the main thing all the way back from Exodus, they should know. In verse 7, Paul issues a command. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ is our Passover lamb. So Paul's assuming some familiarity with Passover, with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, and, and so they were to clean it out, clean out the old leaven through church discipline with a redemptive purpose and hope as it is all described in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. And this practice, this practice of redemptive church discipline is informed by the feast of unleavened bread. Those who profess faith in Christ, they are not free to engage in immorality. And if they do, the church must act in confronting them, and if necessary, disciplining them for their good, for their well-being, for their eternal well-being, and for the protection of the church. Most importantly, for the glory of God. And then, it's almost like, you know, just the mere mention of unleavened bread, it, it just turns Paul's heart and mind to the Passover as he writes, verse 7 again, as you really are unleavened, you really are unleavened for because... Christ is our Passover lamb. So Paul's reminding the Corinthians what made them unleavened bread in the first place. They had been made unleavened by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, their lamb. That's the explanation for their being forgiven for their sin. That's the explanation for the Corinthians being made a new lump. And it is important that we give careful attention. Oh, we must give careful attention to Paul's Grammar. <laughs> he's precise. He's intentional here. The command in verse 7 to cleanse out the old leaven and get rid of the old leaven, it's grounded in a prior action of God. Super important. Here's why. I mean, this is always Paul's way of expressing his gospel centered doctrine and teaching. So, every wise. Every loving command of God is grounded in and rests upon the gracious prior action of God. So, remove the old leaven so that you can start over as unleavened bread because that is what you are. You hear that? The, the logic of this is very crucial. The command... To put out, to shed that old leaven is predicated on the reality that they are unleavened. They're to live like Christians because they've been converted. 
by the gospel. Live like a Christian because that's who you are. That's what you've experienced. Loved ones, so often today, so often today people will excuse their sin rather than repent of their sin because they don't get this right. Yeah, I sin. Yeah, I'm still sinning. Oh, but it's okay because Jesus lived the perfect life that I couldn't live. He died to pay the price that I should have paid. So everything's okay. I don't need to change. I don't need to get rid of the old leaven because I'm already accepted as I am. The acceptance is the excuse for leaving it alone. And that is a dangerous misapplication. And so Paul commands the Corinthians to get rid of the old leaven, to repent of their sins, to live in a new manner consistent with their new identity in Christ, consistent with their new nature in Christ, and to become what they already are in Christ. Verse 7, as you really are unleavened. You know, it's, it's just shocking that I think that Paul would address the Corinthian church with all of its deficiencies and all of its immaturity and all of its needed correction as unleavened. It's just, I, I mean, you, you want to just run over to Paul and tap him and say, say that again? Do you really, did you really call them, address them as unleavened? Do you know who you're talking to? You can think of people like this. Yeah. He, He's unleavened? She's unleavened? Seriously. Sometimes we're often tempted to look introspectively at ourselves and say, I'm unleavened? Me? What possible explanation could there be for addressing me or him or her or them, whoever, as unleavened. And Paul would say, there's only one explanation for anyone being counted unleavened, and that's Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. That's why the only explanation for the Corinthians or the Emmaus Roaders um, being unleavened, God saved. Israel from the destroying angel by the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. God saved the Corinthians and you and me from our sin through the sacrifice of the supreme Passover lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ. God crushed him. He crushed him in order to save them and to save us. And what makes them or anyone God's new people is that sacrifice of the supreme Passover lamb. And so Paul says, look, Because your sins have been atoned for by Christ as your sacrificial lamb, dying in your place as your substitute on the cross, because of that, because of that, get rid of this leaven in your life. Get rid of it. Get rid of all of it. It does not represent the one who died for your sin. And so by the grace, that is the power, the power that God supplies, the power that has made you new, get rid of what Jesus died for. Not as a means of meriting some favor, or as a means of some form of self-salvation, 
but in humble gratitude to the one who sacrificed his son as your Passover lamb. Grace of God does not give permission to sin. It doesn't issue a license to sin. Rather, the grace of God offers pardon for sin and supplies the power to get rid of leaven. Our friend C.J. Mahaney writes, The saving work of Christ for us and the transforming work of Christ within us empower us to purge remaining sin from our lives. Now let me just draw your attention. I know we're going a little bit long today, but I want you to see one last thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Paul says then, let us therefore celebrate. After, after, after some hard, hard things, he says, right? Let us, in light of all that, in light of all these hard things I've said, Celebrate. Celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here's what I'd want to leave you with. Just think about it this way. Every time you meet with your discipleship huddle, or every time you meet with a trusted Christian friend, prayer partner, spiritual mentor, whatever. Every time you come to this worship gathering, it is an occasion to celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. It is an occasion, here's what I mean, it's an occasion to repent of sin. It's an occasion to cleanse out the old leaven and to do so with sincerity and truth with authenticity and transparency. I, I say that because, you know what, you are, you, this is a gathering of sinners. There's nobody here worse than me or you. Nobody. We're all in the same boat. We're, we're all in need of the Passover lamb. So let's just put off that nonsense of dishonesty and posturing and whatnot. This is an occasion with sincerity and truth to lay it before the Lord and be reminded afresh of the new lump that you really are. This gathering right here is a gathering of sinners. And so we, we've come to celebrate and worship our Passover lamb. We exult in his sacrifice for he has pardoned us our sins by substituting himself for our sins. And we gather because that same Passover lamb has empowered us through the miracle of the new birth to fight remaining sin, to do it together in a community of fellow forgiven people who will fight alongside you and for you in your struggle with remaining sin. That's how we keep the main thing, friends, the main thing. Let's pray. If we confess our sins, 
honestly, sincerely, truthfully. Then God, through the sacrifice of our supreme Passover lamb, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Oh Lord, help us never to forget it. Help us never to forget our great exodus. To never forget what you have done to make us your own. And God forbid that the gospel would ever drop from our hands, our hearts, our heads. Cleanse us, intensify your sanctifying work among us through your Holy Spirit now. Do this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.